If you're raising a seed round, just understand that it's going to be 90% vision, 10% numbers. If you're raising a series B, it's going to be 60% numbers, 40% vision. So understand that and understand what's really important. If you're raising a series D and beyond, it's like 90% numbers, 10% vision. Um, and that, that like ratio changes over time, right? As you get bigger and bigger rounds. So understand that and develop your argument under that premise. Welcome back to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the amazing entrepreneurs and innovators who are transforming health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. I feel like I say this every week, but today on the show, we have a particularly special guest in Troy Bannister, the CEO and co-founder of Particle Health. Troy's not only an industry-shaping founder, bringing the best tools of fintech to healthcare, but he's also a former Startup Health staffer. So he embodies the ethos of community and collaboration that we've been working to establish for more than a decade. In the conversation, which was hosted by my colleague Jamie Edwards on a recent fireside chat, Troy covers the health data landscape and what every entrepreneur needs to know about recent regs around data portability. It's a crash course in health data that pretty much every health innovator needs to hear. So without further ado, here's Jamie to kick things off. It's my pleasure today to welcome everyone to this fireside chat. My name is Jamie Edwards and I'm the Chief Platform Officer here at Startup Health. It is a great pleasure today to introduce Troy Bannister with Particle Health. He is the CEO and co-founder. Troy has 15 years of experience as an EMT, a researcher and investor. It is every day that we get to feature one of our own uh, in our fireside chat. And when I say one of our own, Troy satisfies that in two ways. He was a Startup Health team member before he became a founder in our portfolio, which is actually the exact opposite of what happened with me, who was a founder and then became a team member. Uh, Troy's company, Particle, recently celebrated closing a $25 million financing led by Canvas Ventures with participation by Menlo Ventures, Story Ventures, Improving Capital, which brings, and Troy, correct me if I'm wrong, total capital raised to almost $40 million. Yeah, that's right. So today we are here to discuss interoperability and why every digital health founder should care about it. With over 270 million plus patient records under its purview, Troy has led Particle to be a nationwide leader in the interoperability space. And rather than me totally messing up this intro any more than I already have, Troy, I want to welcome you. And we're really looking forward to this discussion today. Thank you. It's good to be back, I guess. Yeah, there you go. Well, welcome back. Um, Troy, why don't you share with us why you founded Particle Health? And I think you actually prepared some slides to walk us through. So why don't you share those as well? Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. Um, so I think what I want to try to do um, is kind of help define what interoperability is a little bit. I think everybody has a different perspective or definition of what interoperability is. And the, the way that we think about interoperability is just getting the right information to the right person at the right time. And that's really the kind of core theme of what interoperability really is. And there's been a lot of different attempts at this over the last 20 plus years. And so I prepared a really quick five minute slide deck just to kind of give this context. Um, just as a quick history, there's been kind of three major themes or iterations of uh, attempts at this in the past. And, and still the fax machine is the number one way that medical information is exchanged and put into the, in the right hands today. Um, there's a company out there called Cyox, you might know, was merged with Datavant, I think a year or two ago. Um, they are the fax machine empire of the United States. They've got thousands of employees in every hospital practice and clinic around the United States that go on demand to go print out records and fax them. Um, the Datavant merger is an attempt to try to modernize that um, and actually create a more of a digital uh, data exchange paradigm within Cyox. Um, but that is still the number one way that medical records are exchanged in the United States today. The second kind of iteration of interoperability is what we call integration engines. Um, you might know Redox is a very popular version of this. There's also MuleSoft and Linite as other kind of competitors in that space. What Redox does really, really well is they will connect one solution to one hospital in a very customized bi-directional data exchange format. Um, so if you're selling to a hospital and you get that contract with the hospital, the next thing is how do I now plug my solution into this organization? That's what Redox does really, really well is this kind of one-to-one -one integration engine tool. Um, and then the third kind of iteration is very similar to what the finance industry operates on today. If you've ever heard of a company called Plaid, 
Um, this is a very similar approach, uh, which is using patient portals. Um, this works really well if your patients know all their usernames and passwords and can log into all their portals, which then gives these third parties access rights to that information. Um, works really well with the portal, the portal route, but um, this is kind of a quick summation of the different attempts over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, there is a new opportunity though, and this is the one that Particle has chosen. And this is really a network approach. Um, it's very complicated kind of behind the scenes, but it solves a lot of the problems that were kind of evident in those prior, uh, prior solutions sh I showed on the prior slide. Um, problems with, with fragmentation and problems, problems with usernames and passwords are not existed here. Um, so what we've done at Particle is we've connected to multiple national networks. These networks are becoming what will be TEFCA, if you heard of TEFCA, um, a new regula regulation that's starting in Q1 of 2023, 20, uh, so just around the corner. Um, TEFCA stands for the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. It is essentially a rules of the road of how data should be exchanged across the United States. And so what we've been doing at Particle is building our integrations across all these networks and adopting all these, these standardized uh, policies and technical frameworks to create the largest network in the United States today. And this is where we get up to the 270 to 300 million people that, um, whose medical records we have access to right now. Um, it gives us access to all these different EMRs that you can see below. Most of our data is coming from groups like Epic, InsureScripts, and Athena Health today. Um, and that expands all the time. Um, the last thing I'll just kind of briefly show is where is it today then? Okay, so we have these networks. This is this new thing. It's becoming a regulation, but what's the status with it? And so I picked a recent company that we onboarded. It was a renal disease focused company. Um, we had a 95% success rate in finding records. We queried about 250 patients for a pilot. Uh, we found over 50,000 files. And what we're good at at Particle is saying, okay, we found all this data. We found, so, we found over a million different observations on these 250 people. What can I extract out of this that's useful for my use case? And so from all that information, we can start to, to work our way into related information for the customers that we serve. So like you can see on the bottom left, we're just looking at things like metabolic panels, glomerular filtration rates, renal function panels, lipid panels, A1Cs. So we can take that whole patient record that we found across all these different endpoints across the United States and then boil that down to a data set that's relevant for a particular use case. And so I just wanted to quickly show you guys that because the, the interesting thing about interoperability today is that it's actually quite mature. It's actually quite far along. Um, this network approach is, is growing very rapidly and maturing very quickly going into Q1 next year, where it will be a regulatory requirement for EMRs to participate and share data. And so we're right around the corner of a very new, I think, era of, of access, getting access to data for the right people at the right time. So Troy, a lot to cover there. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting though, is like you've got, you're on the phone with health transformers now, right? People who are founding companies, digital health businesses, and trying to figure out their interoperability strategies and why it matters. So in your, from your perspective, why does interoperability matter for these companies who are now being founded and launching new platforms? So I, I think there's a couple answers to that question. I think first and foremost is just the, to do things the right way. Um, if you're managing a patient, you cannot manage that patient as best as possible without their medical histories. If you're onboarding a patient and you're trying to understand what care pathway or what services should I offer this individual, and you don't know what meds they're on or what comorbidities they have or when the last time they saw their doctor was, it makes it really hard to develop a care plan that helps that patient truly in, your, in its best form. Outside of that, there's a lot of financial reasons why. Um, having this information at hand in a value-based care setting or a risk-based model is fundamental. You need the ICD-10 codes to submit for reimbursement. You need to cohort your patients into different risk categories to understand where to um, implement your resources and make sure that you're spending the most resources on the highest uh, sensitivity patients. And so looking, using this information to look at a population level view, decide how to, how to treat the right population of folks in your, in your care paradigm, and then use that information for things like reimbursement is, is tr like, that is the operation playbook for value-based care. Um, and so that's where we see most of our customers moving today. Um, you had gone through and spoken about the proliferation of the facts, 
right? And there was a whole campaign online, hashtag WTF, what the facts, right? Like, why do you feel like the industry is still so entrenched with some of these older technologies that really don't get the job done? There's a lot of stakeholders that don't want easy access to data. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, If you are a provider system, like a health system, there is liability for you in sharing this information out. What if the wrong patient gets the wrong record? It's a HIPAA breach. What if, uh, um, what if there is evidence of malpractice in one of these medical records that a patient gets and can go to their lawyer and sue us? Um, what if a doctor wrote a snarky remark in one of the doctor's notes on a, on a bad day? Um, there's just a lot of liability and there's not a lot of upside for the provider groups, the ones that actually hold this information. And so this is why the government stepped in over the last couple of years and said, we don't care if there's no upside for you. The patient has the right to share their data with any third party of their choosing. It's their data, not your data. And so this, this rule TEFCA is in combination with another rule called anti-information blocking, which just turned into a, a, a finable law starting October 6th, um, is, is a, like I said before, it's a sparking this new era of access to data that was never possible before. So the stakeholders that don't want to share it continue to push back hard, um, but the legislation continues to move on as well. You know, it's interesting. You, you're clearly developing a fan um, in our in our you know fireside chat here with Leah Houston, um, who has been um, you know laser focused on the issue of like trying to bring all this information together as well. So Leah, mm-hmm. thanks for bringing that up in the chat. Um, she had talked about the fact that, you know, meaningful use was really step number one to achieving what is now the goal that TEFCA is hopefully going to realize, you know, dive in on TEFCA a little bit and what are the drivers of TEFCA that really are going to make it have a meaningful impact on the future of how we think about who owns this information. So TEFCA and meaningful use are intimately connected. Um, if you are a hospital system, not participating with TEFCA, you're not going to get government subsidized, uh, reimbursements. If you, you basically have to participate in TEFCA or you're just missing money. Um, and so TEFCA is driving forward really quickly. So what is TEFCA? Um, there's two pieces of TEFCA. There's the TEF, which is the Trusted Exchange Framework. And this framework is a technical framework and a policy framework that says, here's the technical way to exchange data across any system in the US. And here's the policy framework for how to exchange data. Um, then there's the common agreement, the, the CA part of TEFCA which is basically standardizing the agreements between all the EMR vendors and providers and health IT vendors like Particle. So instead of me going to every single EMR and negotiating a different contract, it's just one agreed upon government sponsored contract that everybody has to agree to. So they're bulldozing through all this kind of long-term private sector you know, um, policy development work by saying, here's how it's going to be. And what's interesting is if you've ever heard of a group called Care Quality, Care Quality is spun out of the ONC. So there are some people at, at, at Care Quality have ONC email addresses. Some people have White House email addresses. Some people have HHS email addresses. It's kind of that long chain of White House to HHS to ONC to Sequoia Project to Care Quality is this weird chain. Care Quality is the experiment that the ONC was running before TEFCO was a real thing. And it's light years ahead. It's really working today. There's billions and billions of medical records being exchanged in a, every year um, on this, this network. And I say network with quotations because there actually is no technical framework to it. Um, when you join Care Quality, you have to build your own network. And that's what Particle did. It's just a piece of paper that you sign that says, here's how I can build a network. Here's how I'm allowed to exchange data. Here's a common agreement that we all can sign and agree on. So Leah, maybe come off mute, ask your more specific Tefka question that you had put into the chat. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've been kind of following this since, you know, 29, you know, 2016 and then 2020, yeah. and, you know, I'm like, okay, like, when is this actually going to be <laughs> useful? And I'm, I'm paying attention personally, like I'm an emergency doctor and we're working on an identity solution for physicians. And so, you know, I see, oh, provider identity has to be in there. And so I, I haven't been able to really dig into the, to understanding what that actually means. And so I guess yeah. uh, if you could share some of your pain points and some of your successes around that and like, how are they going to actually be authenticating physician and or provider identity with these standards? It's a good question. So TEFCA formally uh, rolls out in Q1 of next year. 
they're currently accepting applications from networks that want to become what are called QHINs, which stands for Qualified Health Information Networks. QHINs are going to be um, different kind of subgroups of the country that together form a cohesive network. The way I think about it, which is a bad analogy, but it's not a horrible analogy, <laughs> is it's kind of like AT&T and Verizon, right? AT&T went to the government and said, give me permission to go build fiber optics across the United States and build this communic telecommunications infrastructure. The same thing is happening in healthcare, which is, hey, the government, give me permission to go build this network across different EMRs and labs and practices and clinics. And so people are applying right now to become the AT&Ts and Verizons of the health information world. So that is currently an application phase. Um, Tefka has a bunch of different pieces to it under these, the policy and technical components. One of those pieces is identity. And that applies both to individuals that want to access their own records, as well as providers that want to, want to um, uh, interact with Tefka. There's a group called Kantara, and Kantara is a, I think, nonprofit third-party group that essentially is credentialing the credential service providers. <laughs> so right now, there are, I think, three or four vendors that can do what's called IAL2 identity verification. IAL2 is identity attestation level two. It's a NIST standard, and it's basically looking at your driver's license, a picture of your face, and then it can validate that you are who you say you are. Right now, I believe it's uh, clear, like that you see the group that you see in the airport, um, ID.me, Experian, and then there's one more that I'm blanking on. Um, those four are, are currently the ones that the government are saying, we trust these ones through Kantara to be the identity service providers. So this has app applicability in Tefka in that if I, an individual, want access to my own record and I come to Particle, I can use Clear to validate my identity and then get, use that to go get my records from the networks. And so that also applies on the provider side to say, I am a doctor and this is the doctor that I am and I want access to my patient's medical records. Um, so that's a quick-ish <laughs> summation of, of that whole thing. So Troy, just on this point and for clarification, right? Like someone putting in James Edwards in one place and there's a ton of James Edwards in the country, right? So there was talk about a movement towards a national patient identifier and doing those types of things. I mean, are those things you see on the horizon that can be helpful? Um, what are the next steps post-TEFCA? Yeah, so what's interesting about that is there's kind of two approaches to this. There is this identity, uh, sorry, this uh, demographic-based matching you know, workflow that we use today. And you can get really smart about how you're using a person's demographics to go find their records, right? There are third-party organizations that you can send somebody their name, date of birth, address, phone number, gender, and they can look up your old maiden name, your old address, your old phone number, and create a very comprehensive demographic payload around you, which then can be used effectively to go find all your records. And that's what we do today. And we have a 93% success rate nationally in finding, a, finding people's records through our API. In lieu of a, a, a unique identifier, and the unique identifier, for those that don't know, is saying, instead of like a social security number, we have a healthcare version of a social security number for every person in the United States. And that makes it much easier for us to go find somebody's records if we know what your number is and where those numbers live. Um, that, weirdly enough, has been um, filibustered through Congress for the last 20 plus years by Rand Paul and Rand Paul's father um, out of Kentucky. Uh, the argument that they make, which is not a horrible one, is that in the current framework of releasing a unique identifier in the healthcare space, it would give law enforcement and the Patriot Act access to unique identifier information in healthcare, meaning law enforcement could look up your medical records using that. And, you know, Rand Paul has basically said, that's not okay. I'm going to keep filibustering this until we take that right out. So that is just used explicitly in healthcare and not for anything else. So politics, politics, politics. Um, the good thing is COVID accelerated this through Congress and it is now, it, it does seem to have legs behind it um, in the healthcare paradigm without law enforcement attached, but convoluted, crazy kind of situation as per usual. Um, it was interesting that you brought up almost like lessons from other industries just now. You're like, we go out and, you know, are you using, you know, credit information to help track down people's patient information? Are we going to start seeing healthcare 
data model around how other industries have managed data? Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think, I mean, healthcare has got its own unique attributes, as we all know. Uh, the networks that are being built are very unique, right? These are federated networks and there's going to be multiple federated networks around the United States that all have to work in concert somehow to create a kind of super organism of networks. And that's hard to do. Uh, this is why we at Particle have elected not to become a network. Um, we had a tough choice to make, you know, about a year ago when Tefka started to formalize saying, do we want to be a network uh, that kind of competes with the other networks in the United States? Or would we rather sit on top of all the networks, connect to all of them and try to aggregate those together to a really simple developer platform that has analytics and we can pull in other data sources for things like pharmacy and ADT feeds, which we've done. Now we're looking at social determinants of health and other data sources, IoT and claims. So we, we elected to do the second, which is let's not be a network. Let's leverage all the networks and create a more comprehensive overarching platform on top of them. Um, so Troy, getting down to like a little bit more of a tactical level for these health transformers, um, you know, I feel like if you're a health transformer, you don't know what an API or SDK is at this point, you know, you've got some wood to chop here, but could you talk <laughs> about how Particle is using APIs and SDKs and then how these health transformers on the phone can interact with those to help build their businesses? Yeah. So APIs aren't as complex as you might think they are. Um, really the, what it is, is it's uh, another bad analogy, but it helps. It's, it's like a door and the door has a set of rules. And if you follow those rules, the door will open. It's a bad analogy, but uh, let's roll with it. Uh, our doorway API requires you to put in somebody's name, date of birth, address, phone number, and gender. And once you do that, the door will open and all those medical records on that individual come back through the door. And so with that premise in mind, now you can start thinking, okay, if I have a, if I have a, a product and I want to connect it to this door, what might initiate uh, that knocking of the door? Is it when the patient schedules an appointment for a doctor? Maybe when that appointment's scheduled, it automatically knocks on the door and submits the name, and then the records come back into the, the EMR or whatever you're using. It could also be as big as, I have a population of 10,000 patients, and I want to go pull all their records every single month and refresh our look on these patients in a population level and identify folks that maybe got a bad lab test or didn't pick up their meds at the pharmacy or um, are declining in health generally. And so you can have 100 knocks on that door within a second. We can handle up to, I think, 300 per second uh, per customer. So um, it's all about understanding how the door works and then building that, that infrastructure into your solution. So that data pops up at the right time for the right person, as I've kind of defined interoperability before. So when we think about, you know, we've spoken a lot about the technology itself, right? And, and what it means to actually be interoperable. Um, what about the human part of it? What role, like, you know, building an interface almost isn't enough in, in and of itself to see the change that we want to see in the healthcare system. So in your view, what role does culture play versus the technology? Uh, so one thing we learned early on is that it's great that we, when, when we were working with a customer to get product and engineering sign off on how to implement this thing, the most important part is who's actually using this information, why are they using it, and, and getting that completely signed off on and clear, and clear uh, between both parties. It's the, if it's a clinical use case, we got to talk to the doctors for probably an hour to figure out what data they want, why they want it, and how we can actually use this to be helpful. Um, so I think the, the learning that we had is we're not just a technology company at the end of the day, we are a clinical, you know, tool for, for actual providers to use to provide better care. Uh, so it, it is like kind of that three pronged approach every single time we, we implement a customer, it's the product needs, the, the engineering needs, and then the clinician needs, um, are equally important. So we've heard a lot about the consumerization of healthcare um, and a lot of, you know, there's two sides of the stone here. Some people think that consumers or patients don't know enough to actually be good consumers of their healthcare and might not understand what's in their patient record. How have you built that bridge or how do you think the yeah. industry needs to build a bridge so that patients can actually become more engaged consumers of their own health information? So I love this question and I'll, I'll look to another industry, which I think shows a lot um, 
it's a bit opaque in the beginning, but it starts to make sense. Um, I always use Plaid as an example because Plaid did just such an outstanding job of creating a new ecosystem of innovation that didn't exist before Plaid. And the companies I always think about are um, Venmo, Mint, and Robinhood. Um, Venmo is one of my favorites because sending $5 from your bank to $5 to your friend's bank was possible before Plaid. But that solution was built by banks for banks. And if you were a bank member, you could go in and you could use some really obtuse tool to send money from your bank to your friend's bank. It's possible, but it wasn't built for the consumer. Venmo didn't do anything that wildly technical or philosophically you know, mind-blowing. They just built it for the consumer for the first time ever. And what's interesting about the analogy here is starting in Q1 of next year, this patient access rule means that any application, any application can pull the complete longitudinal record of a person into it. So I think what happens next year, and this is like the most exciting part about what we're doing at Particle, is that traditionally everybody on this call has been having to build things and sell things for hospitals, for payers, for these, these third-party incumbents. And that has so much dictation around how something should be built for them, not the consumer, not the patient necessarily. Going into next year, we can forget the payers. We can forget the hospitals because we can get the data out now and build things for the consumers. And I think that same thing that happened in Ven with Venmo will happen in healthcare where it's not going to be this like crazy idea. It's going to be a simple idea, just one that was so sucked into the payers needs for so long that we can finally get it out and start building it for consumers. And that's where I think things get really interesting next year. So it's interesting because what you're really talking about is the experience around interoperability. We normally think about interoperability <clears throat> as being this backend tool that nobody sees, right? But what you're talking about is really about bringing interoperability to the forefront. Totally, 100%. Picking, picking a health plan, right? Picking a health plan every year through your employer is the most like mind-numbing, confusing, time-consuming thing. I just randomly pick them these days. I just don't even read it, which is stupid. But what if there was an app that could pull your medical records into it and say, based on your health history, this is the right plan for you? That kind of simple thing is wildly needed in this economy. Um, and it doesn't exist because you, can't, you couldn't do it this year, but you can do it next year. And it could clearly bring a lot of efficiency to the market, match cost to acuity, do all those different types of things. Gene Ann, why don't you come off mute? And while we're speaking about consumerization, why don't you ask your question? Sure. Hey, Troy. Hi. Good to see I you. Wanted to <laughs> Good to be seen. Um, <laughs> I wanted to understand how the money works because it sounds mm. to me like we have finally gotten to where I wanted to go with Unaliware for almost a decade. So, so for example, um, if we have a consumer, you know, we're completely direct to consumer with the Conega Watch. If we have a consumer who gives us permission and then we can go pull all of their medication and comorbidity information so that when we, we can put that in the Conega Watch because we do mm -hmm. have reminders and we can put it in their emergency response record for emergency responders for comorbidities. If it sounds like we're fixing to be able to do that. And so I'm really excited. And who pays for it? <laughs> yeah. So the, the interesting, literally, we can do that today. We can do that today. The difference between today and tomorrow is our customers are providers pulling records on behalf of their patients. Tomorrow is I'm a consumer pulling my record on behalf of myself. And right now, if a consumer requests their own record through the same infrastructure we built, 0% response rate from the EMRs. Next year, 100% response rate from the EMRs. So just want to clarify that. Um, the cost is a bit interesting in that you're going to have, well, you've got options, right? Option one, the hard one, is go build your own integrations into all the networks and normalize the data and da-da-da-da-da. Very, very, very expensive and time-consuming. You need probably 30 people to do that. Option two is you go to a vendor like Particle, who's already done all that work, and you pay us a monthly fee based on how much you use it. It's all usage-based. So you'll have to pay for two things. Um, one is the identity verification of that individual, which is between a dollar and $2, between, depending on the vendor that you use. 
I think clear is like a dollar fifty, for example, to, to verify an identity. And then there's an additional fee for pulling that record. Just so everybody knows, we pay a fee to the networks and which eventually goes to the EMRs for access to this information. Our fee is based on our cust- how many customers we have. So the more people using Particle, the more we have to pay the networks. And so we basically pass that cost on through as revenue um, to our customers that use us. So if I wanted to realize my vision for Canega Watch and, and more services that make things easier for my vulnerable populations, I really kind of need to wait for January. But when I do, um, you know, I can do a deal where I can say, I'm going to make up a number, you know, for 10 bucks extra, we'll go find out your medication information and, and doctor comorbidity stuff. And we'll pre-populate your, your Canega watch with your meds and we'll pre-populate your record at the EMR at the totally. responder. Yep. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. I mean, we have customers doing that right now today, so we know it's possible. If we dive in a little bit on that, it sounds to me like if you're thinking about building a digital health company today, data, that patient data longitudinally is really the lubrication that allows you to really properly target your solution and make that a better experience for the consumer, right? It allows you to customize everything around it. So that's the value that we're really talking about here. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a strong proponent that a year from today, if you don't have your patient's records in your tool, it's going to be a competitive disadvantage. Like if, if there's multiple competitors on the market and one of them has that holistic view of the patient and can use that to provide better services to that patient, uh, they're going to win. So Troy, you, you said a year from today. So let's talk about timing really quickly on this. I mean, we saw when Meaningful Use came out, it took years for everyone to go out, roll out an EMR, you know, and, and, and have that type of functionality built out. And yeah. because of that, um, and because the EMR companies largely didn't do any, you know, UI, UX design on those devices, it was a real challenge for clinicians to actually adopt them and use them, right? Yes. So you're saying a year from now, regulation comes into effect. What is the real timeline until yeah. we see this proliferate throughout being something that we think is cool to being a daily part of how we're doing business in healthcare? So I wrote a pretty spicy Forbes article about this uh, about a month <laughs> ago. Uh, basically, what I was saying is it's completely up to the Office of Civil Rights to make this happen. Um, the rule is clear. And if they decide to enforce it and find people, it's going to happen. If they decide not to find people and enforce it, it's probably not going to happen. So I think that if, you know, I am optimistic in that there will be fines issued sometime in January, February, March of next year. And the reputational risk of that is heavy for, for these provider groups. If I'm Cleveland Clinic, I do not want to be known as an organization that doesn't share patient data, uh, according with the law. So there, there is a lot of pressure to, to do this. Now, with all that said, I am on as many working groups and policy working groups as I possibly can muster. So I do have a little bit of a view into the future. And I know that language is now proposed across care quality and Commonwealth to mandate this as a required purpose of use. What that means is if you are participating in care quality, which is Epic, Athena Health, all the major EMRs, uh, you're going to be forced into sharing. Um, and that rule or that, that language update has been incorporated into the new master service agreement at care quality, which has a 60 to 90 day grace period for compliance, which is why I say sometime around Q1, Q2 of next year, it will be fully up and running. So what I'm hearing is that if I can reflect back for a quick second is, you know, before all of this data was used as an asset by a health system or an Epic, whoever it might be. And so these walls were built up, these silos were built up amongst all this data. And what we're really talking about with this new legislation is the democratizing of all this data so that it can now proliferate throughout the, you know, the, the, um, the universe, if you will, the healthcare universe and be used for good and really controlled by the patient. That's exactly it. I mean, the, the fundamental difference is it wasn't clearly defined whose data this was. And now it's very clearly defined as the, the, the patient's data. And the patient has the right to share it with any third party of their choosing and no one's allowed to tell them no. As we go deeper into this, um, we again get tactical for the health transformers for a second. There's so many different options out there from an interoperability standpoint. How do these HTs decide who to work with, how to implement it, 
um, and what the right product development path is for them when it comes to interoperability? So it's, it's no small task to implement this. Um, the, I showed you some slides in the beginning of this. We, we are finding 150 records per patient per search on average. I mean, we are finding heaps and heaps and heaps of medical records on a per patient basis. So the question is, what do you want to do that with that data? Um, what we find is most customers that really, really understand the why part implement very quickly and successfully. I want to pull A1Cs over time and I want to identify patients in my population that are headed towards diabetes. And if that's your use case and that's the data point you want, then you can implement this in a couple of weeks successfully. But what we find is a lot of folks don't exactly know why they want it, what they're doing it for, and they, they kind of spin in circles or they try to bite off something way too big. I want to use AI and ML to you know, identify who's going to have cancer in five years. In my, it's, you can get really complicated really fast. So you know, my first my first advice to everybody here is if you think having this data is important, really drill down on the why do you want it and what is the use case. Once you know that, then you can go choose the vendor that you, that you want to, to leverage. Um, I showed you some logos before. There's, there's different vendors with different pluses and minuses. Um, you know, Psyox, I mentioned the fax machine version. They will get every record every single time with 100% certainty. Um, you give them a list of places and they will go get those records. Now it takes six weeks and it can cost hundreds of dollars to go collect those records, but you'll get every single record. So there is advantage to that. Um, the second version I mentioned is the um, uh, integration engines like Redox. Redox is the best, 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 best company out there for integrating with a single hospital system. Um, if you get a BAA or a contract with a hospital, I recommend Redox. Um, that is not something Particle does very well. It's like one, one connection to one organization. Um, the last one, uh, the, the portal scra uh, uh, scraping groups, those are good if your patient population knows the usernames and passwords to all of their accounts. If you know that for certain, then that's a great option. If you're looking for full network-wide, one-stop shop access to everybody's records, um, Particle is probably the best option for you. It means you don't need BAs with hospitals. When you sign an agreement with Particle, you get access to every single hospital practice clinic lab in our network immediately on day one. Um, you don't need to know where the patient's records are. You just put in their name, date of birth, address, phone number, and we go find the records. We can go figure out where those records are on our end. And you don't need usernames or passwords. Um, you just need to go click submit. Um, so we solve some of the problems, but I, I will tell you, we don't know when we're missing records, right? I said, we get 150 records per patient per search. There's probably some more records out there that we're missing. Um, we also can't do very um, specific integration needs from like a single hospital, right? If you need access to scheduling or billing, that's Redox. Um, if you need clinical records, that's Particle. So there's some differences between the different buckets of the vendors out there. Um, but uh, this network approach is a newer one um, and it's, it's got a lot of benefits to it. So the next logical question is privacy. Um, how do you feel like this impacts privacy? It looks like in other industries, consumers have been more than willing to give up privacy for convenience. Do you feel like the same is applicable here in healthcare? No, there's no trade-off with privacy here. Um, the customers that we serve today are covered entities. So we fall under the HIPAA treatment, payment, and operations use case categories, which is already well-established data exchange modalities that don't require patient authorization or consent to, to do. Outside of HIPAA, we're now governed by the FTC. And this is things like clinical research, direct-to-consumer solutions, you know, life insurance, disability insurance, uh, all the, all the non-covered uh, entity types of work. In that case, we're going to need a HIPAA authorization signed by the patient and an identity confirmed by the patient for every time we do a query. And so it's no different than doing a fax machine request or, or requesting your records through a portal. It's the same thing. Um, we're just modernizing that, that exchange modality. Got it. Jim, why don't you come off uh, your mute and ask your question? Hey, Trey, hey. how's it going, man? Love what you guys are doing. Uh, this is awesome. And perfect timing for me as well because we just teamed up with uh, four other companies pitching for basically revamping what healthcare looks like uh, in Canada anyways. Uh, they're going to the next. Nice. We're working, going to the, it's part of the King Space Agency, partnering with NASA. So we can work in a confined space with health records and try to revamp this model of care. Uh, but anyways, going back to one of the mandates is interoperability, you know, privacy, all that stuff. 
I was I was wondering, like, just going back to you know all uh, all the stuff you've been talking about. But is there a world standard that the American standards are working with specifically, and and what is a good resource to really go into a deep dive on on, on that topic point? On on standardizations. Standardization, yeah, uh, data standardization so on the world. I guess on a world platform, like for instance, do we do the U.S. like comply with similar information that um, I guess uh, similar standards Australia is doing, for instance? And ah, I see. What is the governing body around this? Yeah. Got it. Um, so the U.S. Is, is a weird country. It's the only country in the entire world where the government will set a law but not define standards. It, it's the only country that allows the private sector to set those standards. Mm. So it's, it takes longer for the U.S. to define those standards, but they're oftentimes better because they're, they're right. much more uh, negotiated upon by multiple stakeholders. So that standards work is happening right now at Care Quality, right? right? Care Quality is where we're figuring out how do we allow a consumer to access their own records through a national infrastructure. So those standards aren't baked in stone yet. We're still arguing over pieces of it in our weekly calls. Um, I'd say there are some standards that are agreed upon, FIRE being one, HL7. Um, there's some standards in the US, if you're familiar with the USCDI, um, which is the core data interoperability set of information. Um, there is the NIST standards, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um, so it's, a, it's an amalgamation of a bunch of different groups. Um, there's another group called the Karen Alliance here in the U.S. that is working on standardization of trust and identity federation. So there's no one-stop shop in the United States for standards. Um, it is not a government-sponsored initiative. It is a private sector initiative, unfortunately. But how does this work on an international level, Troy? We got another question from Alexandra. It says, you know, will this also happen in Europe? Um, you know, what is your view on internationally tying this together? I will answer this question with with the most simple response I can, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> um, every country has their own, you know, bundle of tangled mess. Um, you'd think that Canada with a single payer system or, or the UK with the NHS might have their stuff figured out better than we do. They don't. Um, there are some things they figured out better than us. Um, but, you know, I've seen some companies recently pop up that are kind of particle for England or UK and particle for Canada. I've kind of seen these. Um, so I imagine that there still is a problem to be solved or else those companies wouldn't exist. But I don't know the details, unfortunately. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, it's, a com it's definitely a complicated landscape. Um, Christian from Perceive AI, why don't you come off mute and ask your question? Hi, Troy. Thanks uh, a lot for this. Um, I was curious about like the other modalities. So is it only for uh, EMR or like imaging information can also be uh, fetched out of this for, with the same kind of system? Or is it... Great question. <laughs> Great question. So DICOM exchange is being built into these networks today. We do get a lot of PDFs as well as high-res JPEGs through the networks. Um, they're not as as uh, uh, as detailed as the DICOMs are, obviously, but they do ha contain a lot of the, the data that you would want them to. So we're starting to see more and more imaging come through these networks. The other types of data, right? So we've also integrated pharmacy. So we get real-time pharmacy feeds and 12-month medication histories from pharmacies and PBMs. We've standardized all that data to our data set model. We also now get ADT feeds, which are traditionally HL7. We've converted those to Fire R4. So we are taking other data sources and data uh, modalities and standardizing all that to one API. Um, we're now looking at social determinants of health and claims data to take and convert to Fire R4 instead of you know um, X12 and all this this garbage. Um, so we we are doing a lot of that standardization work too. And just to confirm, this is the it's not the PDF of the DICOM, right? It's the actual DICOM, and you also have PDF of like scans of charts and things like that we get a mix of a lot of stuff i think if there is a dicom that's converted it turns into jpeg all right christian thanks for the question um so josh resnikov actually put a question in the chat does this mean that epic and cerner at all will actually have to have good ui i would like to take this question a step further <laughs> troy which is that if what held those companies in place at their various health systems was this data and now the data is moving more freely um, due to regulations, are we going to see a 
new wave of EMR implementations of companies building a better experience for clinicians? So the short answer is yes, we will. And we already are starting to see that. There's companies like Healthy and Zeus and uh, what's the other one? Definitive Health or something. I can't remember the third one. Um, that are building these building block headless EMRs that are seem to be very well suited for earlier stage companies. They're not building them for hospitals. I don't think hospitals, big hospital systems are ever going to switch off Epic. Um, you have to remember Epic is a revenue cycle management company. They are not a doctor UI UX company. They're in the business of, of, of maximizing your reimbursements to payers. That is what they do. And I think they have kind of the IBM edge, which is nobody's ever gotten fired for choosing Epic. Um, everybody chooses Epic because everybody's choosing Epic. So I don't think Epic's going anywhere. I don't think Cerner's going anywhere. I do think that these more digital first companies are not going to be going to the Athenas or, or these other large EMR vendors anymore. I do believe there will be a new breed of, of workflow-oriented EMRs that are popping up and will continue to pop up over the next five years. So Dave Nguyen, um, you have a question. Why don't you come off mute and ask your question to Troy? Uh, yeah, hey, Troy. Great talk. And uh, yeah, so I'm leading a movement to uh, archive medical data from Africa just to reduce uh, the bias, right, in, cool. for medical AI. But on your point earlier about uh, Rand Paul and his issue with, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the I mean, it's it's it sounds on our end kind of uh, silly, but it actually, the abuse actually happens. Uh, yeah. You know, because last I think it was earlier this year or last year, the UK was doing a large autism study, but they didn't talk to any autistic, I guess, advocates, right? And so, and turns out there were things like, and so they ended up shutting it down because a bunch of advocates said, hey, you have no regulations as to if these companies go bankrupt, can they sell the data of who's autistic to other companies? Because historically, right. geno genocide has happened to autistic people. Right. And they're like, yeah, your regulations are great, except you have no regulation about what if this company that collects it goes bankrupt, who can then buy the data about who's autistic, stuff like that. Right. So can you address that? Uh, uh, those, uh, I guess, if, if possible, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, I mentioned the HIPAA authorization component. Right. So in order to pull some of these records, you need identity of that individual and you need a HIPAA authorization that gives you permission to access their information. That HIPAA authorization is a legal agreement between your organization and them that defines the data usage agreement that, that allows you to use their data to do X, Y, Z. So your organization will have the right to ask that patient to use their data however you think is the right way to do it. And the patient has the right to decide if they're willing to share it or not. So there, there is a onus on entrepreneurs to define these authorizations and legal agreements in a, in a ethical way that says, we can use your data to give you care, but we can't use your data for any other reason. And that is defined by this. And so there, I, what, I, what I believe are, is already happening is a standardization of these HIPAA auth agreements that is, is happening across the ecosystem that says, this is the standardized way for a consumer facing solution to ask permission to use a patient's data for XYZ. So um, there, there is legal guidance and, and um, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes into, into like why you can use a patient's data and for what reasons are ethically okay. But it would preclude things like selling it off. Awesome, thanks. Dave, thanks for the question. So Troy, I'm gonna shift gears here and we're gonna get a little personal. Um, <laughs> I, you know, you are, you know, we're incredibly proud of everything that you've done. Um, it's been great to see your trajectory. You know, you just closed this big round in a really difficult market. And um, we have a lot of HDs, some on the phone who are raising capital right now. Um, what do you think were the keys to your success from, you know, founding till now, raising the rounds that you've raised? And do you have any advice for the founders on this call about, you know, securing a lead in trying times and still marching down the road on their value creation journey? Um yeah, I think there's a few to mention. One is never stop fundraising, right? We hear this all the time, but it's true. Build relationships. The organizations that I've taken money from every time are the ones that I've been in touch with in between rounds. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because they've taken the investment early on me in giving me a lot of time. And that, that cost incurred by them to establish that relationship easily translates into more realistic expectation setting 
and transparency towards a race. So I think that's a really important one that is just a, it's a, it's a um, table stakes thing that you have to do. Um, there's nothing special about it. Um, it does help you, I think, pick the right investors if you're able to spend more time with them in between rounds, but uh, it's something you gotta do. I think number two is depending on your raise, know how to partition your pitch and your, your, um, your argument for fundraise based on the numbers in comparison with the vision. And I, I said that in a weird way, but what I really mean is if you're raising a seed round, just understand that it's going to be 90% vision, 10% numbers. If you're raising a series B, it's going to be 60% numbers, 40% vision. So understand that and understand what's really important. If you're raising a series D and beyond, it's like 90% numbers, 10% vision. Um, and that, that like ratio changes over time, right? As you get bigger and bigger rounds. So understand that and develop your argument under that premise. And I think the last thing I'll say is it's okay to talk really big to investors. <laughs> um, and I don't mean saying, hey, we're projecting of hitting $100 million in the next six months when you have like 10K of ARR. But I do mean being like, if we, here's my big vision. And if we do that big vision, we will have a lot of money coming into the door. I think people might be afraid when they pitch to, to be more realistic and not as aspirational. And it's okay to be aspirational. Um, you know, once you get into diligence and you get into, you know, contracting, it gets really real, really fast. You're going to get to the real talk no matter what, but it's okay to walk into that conversation with really big ambitions and really big uh, vision statement. And in, I think if I'm an investor, I'm filtering out the people that don't come to the door with that. It's just another thing that you have to do, I think. So think really big, have that big master plan, have that vision established and be really excited about it when you talk to investors because that gets them excited. Do you have any advice for the health transformers trying like how to get the most out of their startup health experience? Um, yeah, uh, I think it's pretty relationship-based. Um, I think the more time you spend on the programming, the more uh, easy it becomes to understand who at Particle Health can add the most leverage to your needs. And so organically, by spending time in the programming, you will uncover those relationships and those relationships will pay back for you. Well, Troy, this has been amazing. Um, it's like we're on a, there's a whole new book that's being written right now on data in healthcare, empowering the patient. Um, and if I'm building a digital health company today, I've got to really think hard about interoperability and how that's part of my product roadmap. Um, because without it, I'm, I may be left behind. Troy, thank you so much. We really appreciate the time. Keep up all the great work. Um, and I wish uh, everyone a great rest of the week and special thanks to the Startup Health Support team who made today possible. So with that, we'll say farewell to everyone. And uh, this is great. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers around the world who are dedicated to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 400 companies, go to StartupHealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund, go to HealthMoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back again with another episode next week.